or you know you, you kind of eight pounds or ten pounds just you, 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 you know not comfortable giving that kind of amount you can go online you can go on our website you can give it as little or as much as you want you can give a one-off you can give a regular and um, you can get involved in volunteering you know there's million ways that you can help Oxfam out um, and it's and it you know doesn't necessarily have to be like an right. ongoing commitment okay. all right yeah you're not going to be here again another time. Uh, we will be here another time. I don't, I so some of you have probably been approached at some point in your life by a charity worker with a clipboard on the street. Yeah, I think that probably happens most of the time I go down Cornmarket Street. Right. And when that happens, I usually end up wondering, well, it all sounds pretty good, but is this the best use of my time and money? In our last episode, we wrestled with tricky questions around how to help how we can test good intentions and ideas about how to solve problems like high crime rates, the kind of evidence we should be considering, and the risks that we should weigh. In this series, we explore the idea of effective altruism. It's a way of combining the empathy and the compassion that motivate us to do good things with the evidence and reasoning that helps us do those good things more effectively. Over three episodes, we take questions that keep us up at night, like why should we care for distant strangers at the cost of ourselves and our own communities? Or how can we make sure our donations are doing the most good? And wrestle with just how hard it is to help in the face of suffering and uncertainty, and enlist experts from philosophers and statisticians to social workers and practitioners to find a way forward. In our final episode, we take a look at what? What's actually working out there right now? What are some programs to which I can donate my money and be confident that they're saving lives or doing a lot of good? What do solutions that are global in scope, cost-effective and scientific look like? And is charity the only way to make a difference? What else is possible? We'll start with a major problem in public health that many in the effective altruism community care about because of its importance, cost-effective solutions, and neglectedness the life-and-death stakes of malaria, and its surprisingly tight relationship with global poverty. And when I started digging into that question in various ways as a science journalist, it became clear to me that malaria alone could explain a lot of why some societies are poor and some societies are wealthy. The good work that is already being done to fight malaria and how we can help out... So long-lasting insecticidal nets are accepted by... Uh, uh, all of us really in, involved in uh, the campaign against and the fight against malaria as the first line of defense because it's not only a mechanical barrier, it's also a chemical barrier and it works very, very well. And the tricky debate about direct interventions, foreign aid and investing in sustainable development and technologies. I think our whole mentality about how we help people needs to shift. You know, we, we shouldn't think of it as like, well, what's easy for us to do? What makes us feel good? So we need to be listening to people on the ground and hearing what they want to help on. You know, and I think it behooves us as people who actually do really do want to help to listen to that. You're listening to Doing Good Better, a production from the Centre for Effective Altruism. It's a podcast that explores how to combine head and heart to wrestle with how to, well, do good better. I'm Sam Deer. And I'm Stephanie Tam. 
So malaria is a parasite that, uh, in fact, there are five types of malaria parasite, and they are transmitted by the bite of a mosquito. So that's how we as humans uh, become infected with malaria. Um, it's a particularly debilitating uh, disease, and of course, it is one that can kill. This is Rob Mather, who makes a case for malaria as a killer we should care about. So I set up and run the Against Malaria Foundation, and we fund bed nets to protect people from malaria, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And if we look at some of the numbers around malaria, between half a million and a million people die from malaria each year, depending upon which numbers we focus on. Gathering data in Africa can be challenging at times. Uh, however we look at it, it's a very large number of people. In 2015 alone, it's estimated that around 214 million people fell sick from malaria. So by any measure, it is a humanitarian issue. It perhaps becomes even more emotive when we uh, look at the particular individuals who are affected, and some 70% of the deaths are children under five. Pregnant women are also especially vulnerable to malaria. So it is a humanitarian issue, and it is also a, an economic issue. Because if we look at what happens when people fall sick with malaria, they can't teach, they can't farm, they can't drive, they can't function. And that has a very significant effect on the domestic output, the productivity, uh, often referred to as the gross domestic product, the GDP of a country, indeed of a continent. So if we would all like to assist Africa in improving its GDP circumstances and, and how it prospers, then malaria is towards the top of the list in terms of something that we need to fix. If you're poor, you're more likely to get malaria, of course. This is Sonia Shah. I'm a science journalist and author of a book called The Fever, How Malaria Has Ruled Humankind for 500,000 Years. I'm interested in actually inequality between populations and within societies. And it seemed to me that, you know, health was a major sort of defining factor of that difference. And when I started digging into that question in various ways as a science journalist, it became clear to me that malaria alone could explain a lot of why some societies are poor and some societies are wealthy. Huh, that's really interesting. So effective altruism is really interested in alleviating global poverty. What's the relationship between poverty and malaria? Um, well, I mean, there's ob the obvious one, which is that if you're poor, you're more likely to get malaria, of course, because if you're poor, you're more likely to live in a home that doesn't have window screens, um, that doesn't have reg regular electricity, so you might be outside a lot more. You probably will live in marginal lands that are poorly drained. There might be standing water around. The roads might be rutted, etc. All these things contribute to... Um, the way poverty makes you more vulnerable to getting malaria. However, it also works the other way around. But what we also now know is that having malaria itself can cause poverty, can lead to poverty. Um, you know, just having malaria, of course, is an economic burden. You know, in rural areas, it strikes most often during harvest time. So exactly when families need to be out in the fields, reaping the harvest of all the investment they've made all year, they're homesick and in bed with a fever. So the malaria-poverty relationship becomes something of a vicious cycle. Um, but it also, you know, malaria strikes um, pregnant women and children hardest. And so societies that um, have a lot of malaria tend not to invest as much in those sectors of society, those parts of the demographic. And that has kind of long-term follow-on effects so that 
um, economists like Jeff Sachs have actually figured out that just by having malaria in your society um, depresses GDP growth by 1.3% every year. And if you think of that compounding, you know, year after year after year after year, you think some of these societies have had malaria for centuries and longer than that. Um, you know, so that's that's a pretty heavy toll over time. And how do economists come to these kinds of conclusions? There were studies done early on in the sort of early 20th century. This was done in Central Africa by a mining company where they went in there and you know, of course, there's tons of malaria and tons of other diseases as well. Um, and that was really impeding their ability to just function with, you know, to fu- have this mind functioning because their workforce was like so sick all the time. Anyway, they're able to kind of engineer the landscape so that um, they didn't have malaria anymore. You know, they kind of graded the area, got rid of the standing water, stuff like that. They still had all the other things that make people sick. They still had bad food, unsafe water, not enough health care, like all that other stuff. But they took malaria out of the equation. And what they found is that mortality from everything, so all-cause mortality, went down. So just by getting rid of malaria, you get this drop in deaths from everything else. So it's this sort of underlying kind of contributory factor. All of which makes Sonia's hypothesis that malaria alone could explain a fair bit of global health and poverty pretty compelling. I think one of the, one of the numbers I would offer you is that for every million dollars we spend on fighting malaria effectively, it is often quoted that it improves the GDP of the continent of Africa by $12 million. That's Rob Mather again. Now, if we were to go to a series of investment professional, professionals and say, we're not going to focus on the humanitarian issue, we're not going to focus on people dying and people falling sick, and we're not going to invoke in our minds what would happen if our children were to go to sleep at night with the risk of not a, an itchy bump if they were bitten by a mosquito, but potentially a death sentence. We're not going to invoke any of that. We're just going to focus on the investment return. If we put these quantities of money into effectively and efficiently fighting malaria, particularly in Africa, look at this return. Many investment professionals would say, I want to beat a path to your door. So I think there's a humanitarian and there is an economic argument to say that malaria is something that should be right at the top of our list. So, having heard all that, the scope of malaria, which kills a vast number of people, and its many other knock-on effects in terms of poverty, let's talk about solutions, what we can do, and what is being done already to fight malaria within one of the charities recommended by the Center for Effective Altruism, which is, you guessed it, AMF. So we have a very simple approach. Um, We have people that raise money through us through sponsored activities. Um, And of course, there are others who simply donate money to AMF. We then take all of the public's money, so 100% of the money that's given to us by the public, and we buy long-lasting insecticidal nets, LLINs. Because what we have on our side is that the pregnant female who needs a blood meal to reproduce tends to bite between 10 o'clock at night and 2 o'clock in the morning. In other words, when people are sleeping. So if we can protect people when they're sleeping with a mechanical barrier, a bed net, but one that is also impregnated or covered with insecticide, then when the mosquito lands on the net, uh, it picks up a little bit of insecticide on its feet and it causes what we call knockdown, which is a polite way of saying that it kills the mosquito. 
Now the insecticide is safe for anybody that is inside. So even a very small baby inside is not going to suffer um, any negative effects. And the particular value of these nets is that, as you might imagine, they are distributed in some very challenging environments. And so nets can become damaged and torn. And one of the uh, wonderful things, if you like, about the long-lasting insecticidal net is even when you have tears and holes, which gives an entry point potentially to the mosquito, because the mosquito doesn't do a, a small, small aeroplane aerobatics maneuver through a hole, <laughs> it lands on the net and migrates to the hole. So it's not only a mechanical barrier, it's also a chemical barrier and it works very, very well. And how much do these nets cost to distribute? Well, the nets cost two and a half dollars each on average. And then on top of that, you're adding typically another dollar and a half. So uh, that would be for the shipping and the pre-distribution and the distribution and the follow-up. So we're looking, looking at something like four dollars a net. And those nets protect two people on average and they last for somewhere around three years. Can you talk to me a little bit about that monitoring and evaluation? So there are two things that we would focus on. The first is uh, to ensure that the nets actually get to beneficiaries, to populations as intended. So for us, what that involves is focusing on data. And it particularly involves visiting every single household in a distribution area that is going to receive a net. So for instance, health workers would visit households to learn how many people sleep there so they can account for how many nets are needed for each household. That data is put into electronic form, is put into a database, so it's highly visible. So it can be a part of a very accountable and transparent set of preparations for distribution. And uh, in our particular case, we report on that uh, in great detail for those who wish to look at the detail, but also in summary form for those who wish to look at the summary. So that's the first part. What we then focus on is what we call post-distribution monitoring. So we track every six months by visiting 5% of the households that receive nets, they're randomly selected, they're visited unannounced. And that's the best way of gaining statistically significant information in an unbiased fashion to allow us to understand what is the coverage level after six months and 12 months and 18 months. And we do this for two and a half years. And what is the state of those nets? What is the condition they're in? Right. And what are the kind of coverage rates we're talking about? If you look at a mass campaign, you would hope to achieve somewhere in the region of 95% of sleeping spaces covered on day one. And you typically find that after a a year after 12 months you would be you would hope to find coverage levels still in the sort of 85% and above range and then after 2 years you would hope to be somewhere around the 80% range and then after 3 years when a recoverage campaign would uh, take place you may well have dropped towards 60% or something like that so in other words some of the nets degrade over time in the kind of tough environments they're distributed in so that's the reality. So what we hope to do is to work to achieve at least 80% coverage over the majority of the three-year period, because that will um, ensure that we don't allow, allow malaria back in when we're shutting it out through the, through the distribution of these nets. That makes sense. And um, is that about the goal that you've actually been meeting or...? We, we have in, uh, in Malawi, we have not in DRC. Uh, time will tell in some of the other locations where uh, the post-distribution checkups, as we call them, are at early stages. Um, what kind of evidence is there 
to prove that bed nets are actually effective at preventing malaria? Well, the first studies were done, I think, as, as long as ago, about 30 years ago, and a number of randomised controlled trials have taken place. So to recap from episode two, which you should definitely go back and listen to if you haven't already, a randomised controlled trial is an experimental method that gives us a really good standard of evidence that something works. The idea is that you take a group of people, randomly sort them into two groups so that the groups are more or less the same, and then you give one of the groups a treatment. In this case, the treatment is malaria nets. The other group, known as the control group, gets no treatment. So when you compare the outcomes for the two groups, because the only difference between them, at least in theory, is that one of them received the malaria nets and one didn't, you can conclude that malaria nets are responsible for the different outcomes. There's a, a, a wealth of evidence. I suppose that's uh, very much on our side when we, when we have looked at the, uh, the value of distributing bed nets. Um, there are a number of studies of studies that have taken place that have also drawn that information together to to really investigate um, in great detail how sure are we that nets work and i think um going back uh, a number of years now probably 15 15 to 20 years the the evidence started to be put in place uh, that indicated um at, at a very significant level that that nets are very effective indeed and how much does it actually cost so if someone were wanting to donate to save a child from malaria, how, how much would that cost to save a life? The simple answer, if I was to give one number, would be about $3,000. Um, there is an organization, there are a number of organizations, in fact, that looked at this calculation and said, let's take the, uh, the cost of a net and the cost of distributing it and the number of nets we would have to deploy statistically, given the studies that have been done, that equate to one life being saved or perhaps more correctly, one death averted. But um, uh, that number is, uh, the direct answer to your question is about $3,000. How, so how does that number 3000 get calculated, given that nets cost about two and a half dollars and then, you know, a, a few additional dollars for distribution? Okay, so if you were to, obviously, if, 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 if you and I were to go to a village in Africa and we were to deploy 250 nets, we wouldn't be able to say that 250 lives had been saved. That's because not all of those 250 people receiving the nets would necessarily have died from malaria in the first place. Remember, malaria only kills a small fraction of the vast number of people who fall sick. But statistically what we would find is that if we were to distribute 10,000 nets over here and protect 20,000 people, and if we were to not distribute 10,000 nets over here and not protect 20,000 people, if we were to come back um, a year later and look at the, the, the mortality numbers and see what had happened in those populations that were equally affected by malaria, what we would find is that if we took the total cost we had spent on the nets and the distributing and the monitoring, and uh, we looked at how many fewer people had died in the environment where nets had been distributed, and we performed that calculation, we would find that effectively the deployment of the nets had led to about two to three thousand dollars being required for every life that we saved. Another way of thinking about the cost of saving a life is in terms of a unit called a DALI, which stands for Disability Adjusted Life Years. Now the Disability Adjusted Life Year is in a sense a, a, a measure of overall um, health impact or disease burden and in a sense what it's doing is saying let's look at how many uh, years of life are lost because of this disease, let's say, and also how many years are lived with 
um, with with either disability or reduced um, uh, function, if you like, and to try and combine those two and say, as a result of this disease, um, it is affecting somebody's life um, and removing this number of years because it's causing early death, if you like, and there are a number of years of their life that are being lived um, less fully. Then there's the Quality Adjusted Life Year, or QALY. The other way you can look at it, the other way around, if you like, is a Quality Adjusted Life Year, which in a sense is how much does it cost to give somebody an additional year of life? Um, so we can actually give somebody a healthy year of life, one year of healthy life for X dollars. And that's another way of looking at this economic decision making that has to be made when it comes to health interventions. So by using a measure like a DALI, you can start to make some rough comparisons between different ways of making people healthier. The lower the cost per DALI, the more health that you can create for a fixed amount of money. But you're looking about the very low numbers of a few thousand dollars. Um, and when you think that, I think in uh, in the UK, and it's probably very similar in America and Australia and Canada and many other countries in the world, I think in the UK, our National Health Service is prepared to spend £30,000 on extending a person's life by a year. All of which goes back to Leo Labresco's point in our first episode about the exciting opportunity these charities provide to save lives because our money can go so much farther in so-called developing countries. But there's also another debate when it comes to how to help, that we should not only be focusing on direct interventions like bed nets, which might be regarded as band-aid solutions, but also investing in developing technology or long-term policies that will eradicate the problem altogether. The thing that we don't know how to do yet, or, or that it's very, very difficult to do, is to bring it down to zero. And once you bring it down to zero, then it's not coming back. Science journalist Sonia Shaw again. Because all, all this is a living system, right? We're talking about mosquitoes and parasites that have been around for a long, long time. They have a lot of defenses <laughs> to fight back when we try to control them. And one of the ways they do that is, of course, by evolving resistance to our chemicals. And that usually takes, you know, anywhere from three to seven years. If you use it enough, you know, the more you use it, the faster it's going to become useless. So it's sort of this catch-22, you know. So we either have to keep coming up with new, newer and newer tools, like, okay, we use this one for a while, it stops working, let's keep developing a new one, so then we roll out the next one, and then the next one, then the next one. You know, it's become sort of a Cold War kind of situation. Yeah, and I mean, I guess one of the big problems or concerns in the aid community is that we are actually potentially speeding up resistance of mosquitoes, but... I mean, that also doesn't seem like it's something that can be helped and maybe it's just a problem with every vaccine and every antibiotic ever. I mean, yes and no. I think there are kind of um, innovative ways to get around that problem. You know, if we if we actually accept the fact that these are living creatures that want to survive and have their own strategies for doing that, you know, so it's not just about like killing them with like the biggest gun we can get, <laughs> but what about like, you know, using evolution on our side? And there's actually a few interesting ideas about, um, you know, controlling mosquitoes when they're older, for example. Now, a, like a young mosquito is not going to ever make you sick, right? Because it takes time for a mosquito to A, get infected with malaria, and then it has to develop, the malaria parasite has to develop inside the mosquito's body for anywhere from, you know, could take five to seven days. 
So by the time the malaria mosquito is infective to another person, it is a very, very old mosquito. That's pretty much at the end of their lifespan because a typical mosquito only survives about a week. So we're talking about grandmothers, right? (laughs) Oh my God. That's such a weird concept too, that the dangerous mosquitoes are the grannies. Actually. Yeah, yeah, it's the grand, it's the granny <laughs> mosquitoes. The so old mosquitoes are going to get you. And the thing about, you know, and that, and but that's a really useful fact for us because, you know, you don't necessarily have to depress the entire mosquito population. You know, continue to breed and have babies and you know live to maturity and all that. We just want to shorten their lives a little bit. So as it turns out, there's actually a lot of work being done in this area, controlling malaria by genetically modifying mosquitoes using a gene editing technique called CRISPR. These techniques are still in their infancy, and it's hard to say whether they'll work. But if they did, in the long run, maybe this would be more cost-effective than using bed nets. I know there's some excitement around this new CRISPR technology, so that they're incapable of transmitting malaria to humans. Um, Do you think that's a good solution for eradicating malaria? Well, I mean, as the science progresses, time will tell. But I mean, I suppose my comment would be, I hope so. Because if I look at the number of people that are affected by malaria and that die from malaria and the economic impact, um, we've really got to sort it out. If, If a vaccine can be found and it means that nets are no longer needed, terrific. If, if a genetically modified solution can be found and the scientific community and, and all of us who ultimately engage with that as well believe that that is the way to go, terrific. In the meantime, um, our aim is to do the most we can to cover people with nets. I think there's a lot more that could be done that's way better, way better. Huh. I mean, we know, we know what works. Like we, well, There's parts of the world that had a lot of malaria and now they don't. Yeah. Well, what happened? They developed. They developed. They got more prosperous. Um, people got better homes. People got better roads. Um, people got better healthcare systems so that they could go to the doctor when they were sick and get medicine, get medicines right away. You know, all of that stuff happened, and we got rid of malaria in lots of places in the world. So that's what we need to do, and that's what places where there is a lot of malaria, that's what they want too. Mm, yeah. So essentially, it's actually the solution is partly infrastructure and just improving the overall lifestyle standard of living. Yes. It's overall development and, um, and healthcare infrastructure, all of that, you know, it's just putting into process, you know, a a system of development that continues, that's sustainable, that keeps going. There are also immediate things that can be done that in my view could be a lot more sustainable over time. For example, there's um, efforts to train community health workers, you know, and community health workers who could look at a certain community and see, okay, well, in this community, the malaria mosquitoes are all breeding in this ditch because it's blocked with garbage. So why don't we hire a bunch of kids and we'll clear it, clear all this garbage out. And now suddenly we have far fewer mosquitoes and we have less malaria too. You know, and that's something that people in their own communities, if they're empowered to learn about malaria, learn about the malaria ecology and come up with local solutions that will only work in that one place. I mean, that's not something you can scale up that, you know, everyone can do it everywhere. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting solution. And I sort of wish that there were ways to test that on a, a standardized thing. But that's I, I agree that that's part of the what makes it perhaps local and sustainable. Um, do you know if that's actually been done in any areas? Yeah, there's, there's definitely examples of places where local science has figured out local solutions that work locally and it's you know little things in little parts of environmental management where you can actually really bring down the malaria um, rate it's been done in mexico it's been done in china it's been done in parts of africa as well which brings us to the question of foreign aid which can sometimes be contentious among those working in development so okay in terms of foreign aid uh, good thing, not good things, a way to contribute to even, say, these kind of like local development efforts? Sure. I mean, I think it could. It could. I mean, I haven't seen it doing that so much, but I think it could. Absolutely. I mean, I think I think our whole mentality about how we help people needs to shift. You know, we, we shouldn't think of it as like, well, what's easy for us to do? What makes us feel good? what satisfies our funding cycle and our ability to keep getting more money to do this thing that makes us feel good. You know, that that's, I, to me, that's sort of the ethos in, in a lot of aid work, and that needs to change. So we need to be listening to people on the ground and hearing what they what they want to help on, you know. Yeah. And, and I think in a lot of cases with malaria, they might say, we don't want help with that. We want help with getting jobs. We want help with better homes. We want help with, you know, telecommunications, better cell service. Like that might be what they want, you know, and that's, you know, and I think it behooves us as people who actually do really do want to help to listen to that. Now, there are some very valid and sometimes complicated arguments that become political about foreign aid and funding. Our focus is that as we um, wish to cover people with nets. We want to be alive and aware to the issues, some of the complicated issues that surround um, uh, foreign aid going into different countries. But um, we cannot ignore the fact that we, we need to protect um, uh, many people from malaria, and it is a very large team effort. And in that sense, um, it sounds like the local economies aren't able to meet that challenge on their own. No, I think, I mean, the simple answer is no. Again, we get into political discussion potentially um, in some countries in Africa. Um, the level of governance, um, you know, comes under significant scrutiny, which I think is the, probably the polite way of putting it. Um, and, you know, you know, I think there is a, there's a really valid discussion there about where funds are being allocated and should countries be funding this sort of thing and it not being funded by international aid. But these are not simple issues. Um, and, you know, while somebody might say, surely country X can find $10 million to fund, you know, 4 million nets going into its country, um, remember that Malaria isn't the only problem, you know, malaria, AIDS, TB, um, you know, fresh water, roads. I mean, we're talking about very challenged economies. And I think, uh, you know, I do have some views on um, not just the health environment, but but governance and transparency and accountability in countries and, and judicial systems and so on. But I think that's uh, that's not a discussion that I would focus on um, initially you know, when we at AMF look at here is a circumstance where um, through a lot of discussions and due diligence regarding 
this country needs this many nets. Are there any other funders? If there aren't any other funders, is the reality, as has occurred and does occur, millions of people are going to be left unprotected at night. If my four children were in that environment where I were putting them to bed at night, and as I mentioned earlier, the bite of a mosquito could be a death sentence rather than an inconvenient itchy bump, I know that I would want them under a net. And just because those children are not my children and they're in a different country, that makes no difference to me. I wish them, I wish to have them protected. And I and my colleagues and the many supporters we have, I think feel the same that we want to try and do our bit to assist because we know that if we get nets over heads and beds versus them not having nets, we will have a fairly significant impact on a lot of a lot of people's health. I think the concern that the other, you know, the people who are anxious about foreign aid tend to have is whether it's not just who should be funding bed nets and healthcare and things like that, but whether foreign aid in some way enables governments to not do so. And I think it's a, it's an important one to to continue to address because I think that I think there I would suspect that there are circumstances in which that is the case in that it helps governments avoid their obligations to a degree. Uh, one of the things that I think those involved in international aid can do is to ensure that the work that is done is very well thought through. Um, um, there are soundings taken from many different parties and when assistance is brought to bear, it comes with um, capacity building, uh, in other words, skills and capacity building in country, so that it's not as though it is an in and out intervention. We're assisting those communities in which we operate to better help themselves as the months and the years roll by, because I don't think that aid should be forever. I think that in some ways, aid is a, um, in certain circumstances, has a terrific role to play, but it always, in my view, must keep an eye on trying not to be there as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree with that one. So while the task of finding the most effective ways of making a difference remains incredibly complex, if you're looking for something good to do right now, you could do a lot worse than putting your donations towards buying some bed nets. One of the important things I think to remember is what differentiates something like malaria is it's not just big in scale and it's not just a tractable problem. That is a problem where we can see a solution, but then also malaria is something where there's a big gap between the amount of mosquito nets that should be out there and the amount of mosquito nets that are out there. Yeah, and I think um, maybe this would be a helpful way to summarize some of those ideas, importance, tractability, and neglectedness. Yeah, so one framework that we sometimes use is called IT or importance, tractability, and neglectedness. So importance or impact is basically the scale of the problem. So a really big problem is probably more pressing than a really small problem. Tractability is that, you know, how hard is the problem to solve? And then you've got neglectedness, which is how many people are currently working on the problem. Something that scores highly on all of those areas, you're going to be more likely to solve the problem in a cost-effective way and help more people than something that doesn't. Sure, yeah, and so the way that would kind of map onto malaria would be that it's one of the biggest killers of children under five that goes to importance. Then in terms of tractability, we have this solution in bed nets that is fairly easy to implement and that is not costing a massive amount so you can donate 
more and get more bang for your buck, so to speak. And then neglectedness, suggesting that... the If you look at the projections between what it would take to get full coverage of malaria endemic areas in Africa, there's a big gap between the amount of mosquito nets that should be out there and the amount of mosquito nets that are out there. Hmm. Yeah, part of the idea is there are certainly other things that may be as big in terms of global burden, but perhaps less easy to fix, at least in a donation sense. Yeah, either less easy to fix or they already have lots of people working on them. So climate change is obviously an incredibly important issue, but it's very, very hard to solve because it's a massive coordination problem between all of the countries in the world and <laughs> yeah, requires this huge amount of international coordination and cooperation. There's lots of vested interests working against it. Uh, and also there are lots and lots of climate activists because it is obviously such an important problem. I mean, I think part of this is getting at the idea that the recommendations that might be on EA charities aren't universal mandates. So obviously you want some people working on climate change and part of the reason that Center for Effective Altruism doesn't focus on climate change is also because a lot of other people are focusing on it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're not trying to say everyone should follow this exact path. What you're trying to do is say, Let's not make judgments about what we should do in a vacuum. Let's look what other people are already doing because there might be an important field out there, but it might also be a crowded field. And so being the next person in a crowded space doesn't really do that much. Being the next person in a space that's really neglected could actually move the needle a whole bunch. Sonia mentioned this idea that it's easy for us to donate to bed nets and to spend that kind of money just because we don't want to deal with it in the way that is actually more complicated. Yeah, so there's, there's two things there. I, I think that's a really important point. But I, I would turn that question on its head. You know, where in many ways, that's actually that's what we should be doing. I am not a political activist in you know West Africa, so for me to, to make claims about that political environment or to, to call for a particular change of government without having all the facts and without being a local activist seems very presumptuous. But I can help by distributing anti-malarial bed nets. It feels much riskier, certainly for small donors and people who are not subject matter experts and in-country experts to be the people who are kind of making the decisions about which, you know, which roads to fund. Yeah. Um, that seems really fraught. Again, it goes to this idea of neglectedness. If a local government is more likely to invest in the road, then you shouldn't invest in the road because that's that's exactly the problem that you could raise the outside donors supplanting the local capacity of the local government to do their job they're both good approaches to this and we should be not just investing in sort of short-term safe solutions we also need to be investing in risky long-term solutions that have these high payoffs we just need to do that as advisedly as possible yeah so we've been exploring how to help, how to help the most people, what doing good looks like in various contexts. Um, I'm thinking about how we want to end the series. Yeah. Is there something that you really want people to take away? Yeah, I, I really hope people go away feeling excited about what they might be able to do, that making a difference is really possible and that helping other people doesn't have to come at a cost to yourself, that altruism is something that you can do, you can be excited about it, and by being deliberate about it, consciously seek out those opportunities which help the most people, that you, you can actually make a tangible difference in your lifetime and not just for people living now but for people 
in the future as well and i don't know i i, I that really inspires and motivates me and i hope that that's inspiring and motivating to other people well, as someone fairly new to the ideas of effective altruism, and who often wonders how to do good better, it's been an interesting, thought-provoking adventure, and I hope it's been for you as well. This has been Doing Good Better, a production of the Centre for Effective Altruism. If you're interested in learning more about some of the charities or causes that might have the greatest potential to help others, or anything else about effective altruism, check out effectivealtruism.org. You'll find resources on these topics and many more. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. Doing Good Better is a podcast series co-hosted by Sam Deer and Stephanie Tam, exploring the why, the how, and the what of effective altruism. Our producer is Stephanie Tam, and our sound engineer is Dominic Apper. Our production assistants are Sandrine Chassong, Jancy Hall, and Kieran Lloyd, with help from Sam Deer, Irene Tortahada, and Nikita Patel.